Welcome to the 147th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Rutherford. Stay tuned for my interview with Paul French, author of Midnight in Peking and The Badlands, More Stories from Midnight in Peking. These books are nonfiction books and a look at 1930s Peking. Stay tuned for my interview with Paul French. Also, I would just like to add, if you enjoy this podcast, please take a moment and write a review on the iTunes store. It helps other people find the podcast. It only takes a moment of your time, and you can just leave a quick review. Thanks, and stay tuned for the interview. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Paul French. Paul is the author of The Badlands, a nonfiction book about 1930s Peking, which studies eight residents of Peking's infamous Badlands district. Paul's previous book, Midnight in Peking, won the Edgar Allan Poe Award. Midnight in Peking chronicled an unsolved murder, the brutal killing of a British schoolgirl in January 1937. Paul, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thank you very much. It's an honor. Sure. Well, at the beginning, I wondered if you could read the first page or two of your new book, The Badlands. Uh, yeah, sure. I'd love to. Um, uh, uh, so here I go. Um, the district of pre-communist Peking that came to be known as the Badlands flickered into life in the late 1920s as a means of feeding the appetites of a certain sort of foreigner in the city and in China. It was a place where the worlds of entertainment, prostitution, booze, and dope came together with the yearning for sex, easy money, and personal oblivion. A tight-net warren of vice and lust and depravity, its period was brief, lasting only until 1941. Its heyday was the 1930s, Auden's low, dishonest decade, a description that fitted perfectly. The Badlands sat just inside the eastern flank of the Tartar Wall, which at that time enclosed the old imperial city of Peking, before the 20s, the area was just a scrap of wasteland used for little besides parading the bored foreign soldiers who guarded the embassies, which were known as legations in Peking, or for exercising horses. Once it took off as a nightlife destination, it became a rookery of jerry-built alleyways or lutongs. The properties were generally owned by Chinese speculators and rented to foreigners who opened dance halls, dive bars, brothels, cheap flop houses, and restaurants. These foreigners were mainly stateless white Russians who'd fled the Bolshevik Revolution, but Europeans and Americans were clustered in there too. The area was a multinational magnet for sin that came to life after dark. In the 1920s, nearly three decades after the turmoil of the Boxer Rebellion and the siege of the legations, Peking's foreign community was feeling safer. A sense of complacency had set in, which was followed in the 1930s by a collapse in morality. Social mores spun off kilter, self-control and restraint broke down, and on the back of this, the Badlands festered. The Chinese police largely chose not to interfere in the running of the place, leaving the foreigners to police themselves. As the Badlands grew, attracting the so-called foreign driftwood of China, so any official control of the district spiraled downwards. Even the darkest desires could be fed there, catered for by the criminal and the corrupt, who felt themselves effectively untouchable, within the confines of the rookery. So hopefully that uh, gives you a feeling for the sort of place it was. Yeah, exactly. And and, and what originally interest, interested you about 1930s Peking and led you to write First Midnight in Peking and now Badlands? 
Well, you know, I, I've, I've lived in China as, as a Brit. I've lived in China for over 20 years now, and I've always been fascinated by the, um, the foreigners who lived in China before the revolution, really, uh, in 1949, the people that lived there in the first half of the 20th century, and the adventures and the escapades that they got up to. And um, I, I was reading uh, the old newspapers from that time at one point, and, and, and I came across this story of 1937 where a young English girl uh, the wife of, uh, sorry, the daughter of a uh, British diplomat was murdered and um, uh, uh, pretty horrifically, and the case was never solved. Um, and I and I thought that was that was possibly an interesting story, and and that was the story of Midnight in Peking, the attempt to try and find out who killed Pamela Werner, that girl in 1937. Um, people liked it so much, uh, hopefully, that um, uh, they wanted more about those characters, those those foreigners who are not the ones we always think of, the missionaries, the diplomats, the businessmen, but the sort of you know the underbelly of fo- of foreign uh, of foreign China that really hasn't been written about very much. And were you when you were working on Midnight in Peking, were you already collecting the stories that that you write about in Badlands? Well, partly. I mean, Midnight in Peking follows the police investigation into the murder. And it was a unique investigation in that um, the chief of Chinese detectives in Peking uh, led the investigation. But there happened to be a British detective that was based in China at the time, a Scotland Yard trained detective. And and they worked together, which is a fairly unique incidence of uh, collaboration in a murder investigation in China. Um, So so, so there, there were a lot of, because I wanted to tell that story, that story quite succinctly. There are a lot of people from the Badlands, various prostitutes, pimps, uh, stateless white Russians, as I've mentioned, the underbelly of foreign China, who, who gave little pieces of evidence or who, who helped support various clues, clues and theses. Um, and I didn't really have time to go off and talk about them a lot because it would have sort of, you know, taken you away from the plot, which always needs to drive forward in a crime novel, obviously. Um, and... Um, and, and so I wanted to write more and use more and, and, and include more photos of those. The second thing that happened, though, was that after Midnight in Peking came out, was that I, people got in touch with me from around the world. People in their 80s and 90s who, as children or as young people, had been living in uh, Beijing and remembered the murder and remembered some of these characters, remembered this area of the Badlands in Peking. And they sent me stories and anecdotes and pictures. And I just thought that, you know... This stuff that had been in their heads for 70, 80 years really needed to be recorded and also, uh, you know, to tell some of the backstories of some of the minor characters. Interesting. So you mentioned that you have lived in China yourself for 20 years. What, what is your experience of China and how, how does it differ from the, those people living in the Badlands? Well, I, I think the main difference is that, you know, I, I came to China originally as a student, a language student in the 1980s to learn Chinese from England, and then came back in the early 1990s as a businessman, really, uh, you know, trying to make money in China. Um, and, and my experience uh, has always been of a China that is growing, that is rising, that is feeling more self-confident, that is economically more powerful, as, as everyone knows that story. Um, the experience of the people I write about in the 1920s and 30s was about living in a China that was weak, was divided, 
was being invaded by the Japanese, and there was really a question as to whether or not China would would survive or not, whether or not it would just explode into you know uh, many countries run by warlords and, and just become ungovernable. So of course you know myself and these people have hit China at very different points in its uh, you know uh, ascendancy. Sure. Well, of the characters that you write about in Badlands, is there one that particularly fascinates you more than the others? There is one character that not only fascinates me more than the others, but has fascinated readers. And I get so many emails about this character. And he's a man who was uh, extremely mercurial. He was a white Russian refugee. He was a young man who fled Russia from the Bolsheviks and come to China, as so many white Russians did. And he was called Shura. Uh, which is a quite common Chinese, uh, Russian patronymic. But he uh, were, had the unique, well, not unique, but rare distinction of being an hermaphrodite and would sometimes appear as a, a extremely glamorous woman and would sometimes appear as a man in a, in a suit, depending on, on the occasion. Um, he was basically the uncrowned king of the Badlands, uh, perhaps, or maybe he was just a teller of tall tales. Um, after I published the book, um, people were fascinated by this character um, and the fact that he he might have been behind every bit of vice in the band, but then again, he might not. And I got letters from all the places, really, that the white Russians have settled, which would be San Francisco, Melbourne, Sydney, Rio de Janeiro. These are the big communities of the former white, white Russians who went to China after they left in 1949. And, and about 50% of those letters said to me, you were completely right. He ran every bar, every brothel, every, he was behind every bank robbery. And the other half of the letters said uh, he was nothing at all. He was just a guy who told stories and sat around in bars. So even now, he remains incredibly mercurial. Interesting. So are you planning on writing more books about Peking? Well, actually, what I want to do and what I'm working on at the moment is a book that, that takes place about a year after, a year or two after the events of Midnight in Peking, which really runs from about 1937 to about 1940. And I want to write about the foreigners, really the foreign gangsters who lived in Shanghai uh, at that time. Um, Shanghai, of course, is an international city, a little bit like Casablanca or somewhere like that, was surrounded by the Japanese but wasn't invaded. Um, the Chinese gangsters that were there, who are quite well known, had left. And foreign gangsters uh, ran the city completely, uh, uh, creating large uh, gambling empires and prostitution empires. And of course, wherever there's uh, two or more mafias, eventually they go to war because there can only ever be one mafia. Um, and um, I want to write about those. And in a sense, that, that, that I think is interesting because I think, you know, if I say to your listeners, Shanghai, 1930s, 1940s, they will have a whole set of uh, uh, flashbulbs popping off in their head that involve beautiful women, guns, drugs, jazz, <laughs> gangsters, and everything. You know, it's, it's such sure. an incredible place at an incredible time. Sure. So you said that you went back to China in the early 1990s to, to you know, work in business. I'm just curious about your, your career and what led you up to writing Midnight in Peking and what, what that process was like. Uh, well, I've kind of, for 20 years, I've divided my time between uh, working every day. I mean, my, my job has been as an economist, looking particularly at, um, you know, just what is going on with the Chinese economy, how, how big is it? How much of a threat to, to the rest of the world is it? 
just how can they produce an iPod so cheaply that allows Apple to make quite so much money for everyone to, to own one, to listen to this podcast and so on. You know, how can this be possible? How can it be that we walk into every uh, branch of the gap and everything's made in China? And where has all that money gone? And, and now that Chinese people have money, what are they spending it on? Well, you know, Buicks and guess what, sort of Apple Macs and things like that. So that, that has fascinated me during the day, which is all the story of China now and its rise. Um, and then I guess when I finished work at the end of the day and at the weekends, I was writing about, you know, what are, what were the lives of foreigners like in China before the revolution, before Mao, um, you know, when, when China was a great market back in the 20s and 30s, everybody wanted to make lots of money in China. And then we had this kind of blackout period after the revolution until the sort of late 1980s. And now, of course, everybody's back hoping that uh, they can make lots of money there once again. Sure. Sure. So as a Westerner, what has been the most surprising thing to you in researching Peking in the 1930s? Well, what really fascinates me is just how much, you know, even if you read a lot of Chinese history and even if you read a lot of memoirs and, and books, is how much the story of China um, and the story of foreigners in China has been told by the winners, right? It's been told by the diplomats, the businessmen, the journalists, um, and the missionaries as well, of course, who wrote lots of books about being in China. Um, but there was this other side, this less respectable side of the foreign community in China, which was people who went to China because, you know, if you were, if you were in trouble with the police in London or Paris or New York or anywhere, this was about as far as you could go uh, without dropping off the end of the planet. And, um, you know, you could go there and hide. And, of course, in those days, without computer systems and everything, you could give yourself a new name, get yourself a new passport, and basically reinvent yourself. And I, I find that fascinating. And I have to say that, you know, there's more than one foreigner in China these days who's changed their name and reinvented themselves to uh, get away from uh, the FBI or Scotland. You know? <laughs> so so what, is the, what has been the Chinese reaction to your two books? Well, it's really great that you should ask that because today uh, I, I do a little kind of walk here in Peking, which takes you past some of the sites and some of the buildings and houses and locations in midnight in Peking and through the old badlands, which they're not bad anymore. They're just where people live, but the buildings are still there. Um, and uh, I did a, a walk today for the Chinese publishers. The, the, there is a Chinese language edition of the book, and we took 20 uh, readers of the book uh, through that area. Now, what interests me is, um, number one, that uh, most Chinese, because of the education system here in China and everything, really have no idea that there are all these foreigners here in China before. They think that foreigners in China is something new, and, and that's just not true. Um, and, and the other thing is that, you know, they, they, you know, even if you live in a city like Beijing, you know, until you perhaps read a book like Midnight in Peking, you don't really uh, see the city. After you've read a book like that, you see the city through different eyes. You see areas of the city as being places where foreigners live or places where, you know, there were bars and prostitution and now there's just people living there and everything. So, so you understand, I, I guess, what you call, you know, the sort of psychogeography of the city differently. So I'm really pleased in a place like Beijing where, where everyone's really sort of you know, not thinking about history a lot because China is all about the future and not about the past. Um, but this is making people think about the history of their city. 
Interesting. So you just mentioned that you, you know, as as part of your your work as an economist, you look at at um, uh, China and and you know where things are headed. Do you, do you have any you know predictions that you would like to make in terms of China on the world stage or or you know where their economy is headed? Well, Jeff, you know, the one thing I can tell you as a historian and an economist is that, you know, the history of people predicting the future of China is not good. Um, you know, uh, we tend to get it massively wrong. So I'd say to anyone listening that basically, if you do the exact opposite of what I'm about to say, you're, you're, you've got a 50% chance of being right. Um, my, my feeling is that nobody ever said anything more profound about China than, um, than the French president, Charles de Gaulle, who, after visiting China, was asked, you know, what did you learn when you went to China? And he said, it's a big country with a lot of people. Um, and I think that that's basically about the only two unarguable facts about China. It is a large country. There are a lot of people. Um, and so everything you say about China is right and everything you say about China is wrong. The only thing I would say is that what has amazed me about China is that it's not difficult to make an argument for why this place should collapse tomorrow. It's not difficult to make an argument as to why there should be another revolution, a, a kind of a, a you know Arab Spring, a Chinese Spring, if you like, tomorrow. The economy is is successful but unstable. All I would say is that the word to think about when you think about China is pragmatism. The Chinese Communist Party has proved itself to be incredibly pragmatic, much more so than the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe and places that have not really delivered a good quality of life for their people like Cuba or somewhere. China has managed to take us completely off the map in terms of what you can do with a billion people and no democracy. And I think we have no blueprint for this. Um, China's the government's pragmatism has meant that they are incredibly able to deal with all sorts of problems. Um, I don't see any reason why they shouldn't go on doing that. However, I will say, just to protect myself, that there could be a revolution tomorrow and the whole thing will change. Interesting. Well, again, we've been speaking with Paul French, author of Badlands and the Edgar Award-winning Midnight in Peking. Both books are available in bookstores now, so grab a copy. And Paul, thanks for doing this interview. Oh, it's been great fun. Thanks. Thanks. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.